And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. A ton to get to, as always, today on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Um, yeah, I was joined by my friend Ben Howe, uh, author of the brand new book, The Immoral Majority, which you can pre-order right now on Amazon. Uh, it, was, it was great talking to Ben. Uh, really good guy. Really smart guy. We, uh, we talked about... Uh, what did we talk about, man? We, we covered a lot of ground. We covered quite a bit of ground today. Um, talking about uh, the pro-life issues, these new heartbeat bills passed in Alabama, Ohio, Georgia, um, and other states. We talked about the escalating tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Um, we spent an exorbitant amount of time. I'm trying to predict <laughs> the final episode of Game of Thrones. So, uh, yeah, sorry, not sorry about that. Had to be done. Had to go there, people. Um, yeah, and we talked about Ben's new book and why you guys should all pre-order it, which you absolutely should do that right now on Amazon. Um, yeah, before I get to Ben, uh, guys, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod, and please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate that. That helps us move up the iTunes charts and all of that good stuff. All right, without further ado, here is my chat with Ben Howe. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with the great Ben Howe. Ben, my friend, thanks so much for coming back on, man. Uh, oh, absolutely, man. It's good to be here. All right. So let's jump right into the news of the day. Um, I, I want to talk first about all of these pro-life victories that have been happening in recent months. Um, yesterday, Alabama passed uh, probably the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. I believe uh, Governor Kay Ivey is signing into law today. This comes on the heels of Georgia and Ohio passing their own heartbeat bills in the last couple months. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of conservatives are actually complaining about this, saying that, you know, it's pointless. The Supreme Court's going to strike it down anyway, which is probably, you know, true, you know, calling it a waste of time. I, look, my perspective, just starters, is these Republican state legislators are actually stepping up and doing what they campaigned on. And these GOP governors are actually showing some balls for the first time in a long time. So, <laughs> like, even even if the Supreme Court strikes these laws down, which they more than likely will, probably 6-3 um, mm -hmm. I, I don't see Roberts or Kavanaugh, you know, upholding any of these laws, but I, I still see it as progress. Where do you come down on that? Well, you know, in, in recent years, especially, I think I, 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 a lot of times when it comes to stuff like this, I'm, I'm thinking about at the core, what do we want? And what I want is to persuade people. And that's where I, that where I come out more with the people who I, I wouldn't say I'm frustrated it's more um, that I worry about the hardening of hearts. I want the uh, I want to get to a point where people see abortion, people see um, a fetus the way I do. I know that tons of them don't. I think a lot of people have nuanced views on this um, because of their own life experiences. Um, some of them have just chosen not to get certain types of information that might have changed their mind. But what concerns me at times with the way that the politics is going is that we've we've moved into gain power wield power and then use that power to sort of force an outcome and then hope that the culture will follow 
And I don't know that it works that way because as for, for the last several decades, as power has become more and more um, an instrument wielded by people to force an outcome, uh, the divisions in the public have gotten stronger. And, you know, we're not dealing when we're talking about Americans and we're talking about voters and issues and, and things like that. We're not dealing with a situation where one side wins and when the, and when that one side wins, the other side is vanquished. If we were, which is more like, you know, what happens in war, for instance, right. um, it would be simple. You get the power, you destroy your enemy. But this enemy is our neighbor. And so if we don't learn how to persuade them, it doesn't matter what victories we have if all we're doing is wielding power to destroy our enemy. So while I understand absolutely where they're coming from because I'm a very pro-life, and I understand the human cost and all of these other aspects of it. And while I want, uh, I, I want to live in a world where people don't see it as an acceptable thing, I don't think you can do that in this, using the kinds of tactics that you would use essentially in war. And I think that's what's happening here. And I think that's a lot of what happens with the current GOP and the current Democrat Party, uh, which is that each side is angling to um, accumulate enough power to show their base and show their people that they already agree with that they will use this power um, you know to support what these people believe but without working at all to influence anyone outside of who they already influence and that's just going to leave us this divided and so it concerns me it concerns me uh, a great deal because I think it leads us away from our goals I definitely think that's a concern, and it could it could in the long term lead us away from our goals. I one one thing I was I was thinking about this morning um, when I was going through what I want to talk about on the show is that the the left employs these tactics these tactics constantly, right? When where they they'll pass legislation that they know is never going to actually go into effect, and it's not really about you know any kind of political win. It's about shifting the Overton window to the left. And you see this with right. Medicare for all. Like Bernie Sanders knows, at least in his lifetime. Um, even if he lives to 120, uh, Medicare for all is not happening. Um, but it's shifting the Overton window to the left and, and bringing that into the lexicon, bringing that into the mainstream. Do you think there's anything sure. to be said that this is what the GOP is doing on the life issues right now? So, like, yes, the Supreme Court's probably going to shut this down. Mm-hmm. But at least, you know, the entire country is seeing several major states are pushing for heartbeat bills and stuff like that. It is maybe bringing it into the mainstream a little bit more than it was before. Do you think there's anything to be said for doing that? Well, yeah, yeah, but the the, the issue with it is this. If you look at, for instance, the Overton window shifting in terms of moving towards Medicare for all or single payer, um, you might cite Obamacare. But let's look at what happened with Obamacare. They did try to shift the Overton window, you could argue, in, in a similar way to the way these abortion laws are, but on a national level. And it was a huge uproar. And, you know, I was at the Tea Parties protesting against it. Well, what's happened in the years since then? Has Obamacare shifted the Overton window to the point where people had started to get persuaded to their cause? Not really. If you, there's, there's a huge argument to be made that as a result of cramming Obamacare down people's throats, Donald Trump got elected. Right. And you know, now they're they're again campaigning on the idea that they're going to repeal Obamacare. They already detoothed it in a lot of ways. So now when Bernie Sanders comes forward and says, I want to do Medicare for all, 
Has the Overton window really shifted? Not, I, don't, I would say it hasn't. He's, he's offering something uh, that people are now, now even more against than they were before. I mean, pretend for a moment that I don't live in a reality where I believe at all that single payer is a good idea. But let's just pretend for a second that it is. Let's pretend that the real answer is single payer. Have the Democrats or the progressives in any way with the tactics they've used over the last 10 to 15 years, have they moved me or anyone else in the direction of agreeing with them? I don't think they have. I think they've moved me further and further entrenched me into believing that it's a terrible idea. So that's where I, I, when, when the left decided for these things, I think one of the things that is missed is number one, not, not clear to me it worked. But secondly, the, the differing, the thing that's supposed to be different between, um, you know, free, free market loving capitalists and, you know, socialists, they're willing to cram it down our throat because ultimately they're willing to give the state control over people's lives. We aren't. So in a sense, yeah, they, they're moving the Overton window because they're willing to um, be statists about it. We aren't. Right. So I just don't think they're, I don't think they're a great example of how to do it. I think they're never a great example of how to do it because those tactics they use there is an underlying um mentality that is and it's antithetical to how i would think conservatives would want to view things and uh i don't want to emulate their tactics i want to find a way to persuade people and that's what's frustrating for me about this is we were we were we were getting to people we were talking about one of the best things that's happened in the last couple of years in terms of talking to people about abortion is the, uh, you know, those undercover videos that came out, right. the, uh, the, the discussions of what Planned Parenthood really does. Yeah. The, the project, those Veritas are ways to get to the, people. those other, yeah. The guerrilla journalist videos. Yeah. I think those were very effective. Right. And I saw a video where a guy went around a college campus and asked people about their position on abortion. They said what their position on abortion was. They said what they thought a 10 week fetus looked like. And then he showed them videos and showed them like diagrams of how it abortion actually works and people started shifting their opinions. The, you, someday what you, you want is to be able to enact laws, but what you want is to enact those laws with a uh, majority of the country seeing it that way, with the culture having shifted towards it. It's, it's not that I don't place the um, value of the human lives that are at stake. At a, it's not that that doesn't have a higher value to me than um, a more persuasive effort. It's that without the more persuasive effort, I think more lives will be lost. So, you know, I'm not trying to pull a Thanos and just go, well, we'll have to sacrifice <laughs> them in the effort to persuade. But at the same time, I don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot um, because we're so dedicated to the cause of life that we endanger it. Right. I, I, I definitely think that's a concern. We're going to have to wait and see how this pans out. Um, I, look, as an Ohioan who who sat through eight years of John Kasich as my governor, and, and obviously Kasich, <laughs> Kasich in the 80s and 90s was an extremely conservative congressman. He, he was the chairman of the of the uh, budget committee when they when they you know balanced the budget in, in 1998, 1999, and you know and then he's governor and governs as like a center left guy, like a moderate at mm -hmm. best. And uh, so it is hard. And by the way, 
the son of a mailman. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I said he's the, he's the son of a postman. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God bless that man's father, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> you know, but a guy like Mike DeWine, who he's no, like, you know, true red rock ribbed conservative or anything like that, but he has been consistently pro-life his entire career as a senator and as AG. <laughs> and so it is heartening that he did sign the heartbeat bill. <laughs> like you can't be pro-life sure. in for 30 years in public service and then flip on it like Kasich did. So it's like, it is, even if it ends up hurting long-term, like at least as an Ohioan, seeing my mm-hmm. governor actually have some balls for the, for the first time in 10 years is like, okay, like I, it's well, and, and by the way, let me, let me be clear. I, I don't think that there's no purpose in passing legislation at the state level that you know is going to get uh, turned away uh, by the Supreme Court um, as a way of uh, forcing the discussion into a, a particular direction. I am not disagreeing that there can be times and tactics where that makes sense. But what I am saying is we need to be thoughtful about what those are and what they are intended to do. And especially when we know they're not going to pass them in the first place, why not craft something that creates the same um, conclusions that are on the side of pro-life, but without giving any ammo to the people who, you know, are going to scream tyranny and all this other stuff, put them in a position to actually debate us on the merits of our argument and not over government overreach or something else. Like I think the way these are crafted sometimes gives them the opportunity to make it about something else. And what we should be wanting is to force them into a position where they're going to talk to us about it. Right. So it's it's like, I get the idea, but I think it goes a little too far. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. And uh, one, one more thing on, on the pro-life issue before we move on is, I, I think our, our boy, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, is about to confirm mm-hmm. all of our worst fears about him here in the coming weeks <laughs> regarding mm-hmm. this issue. I it, The writing's kind of been on the wall. Uh, for the last few months, as of what kind of justice Kavanaugh is going to be, I think he's kind of going to put a nail in that coffin once or for, once for all about you know regarding these heartbeat bills. I, I think, uh, yeah, I, 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 man, don't you wish that we could we knew what we were getting out of our justices the way the left does? I mean, man, they, a Democrat has never appointed a justice who turned out to be a conservative. Why the hell does this only happen to us? Well, I, I think that part of the issue is we want we don't want uh, conservative justices, not really. Right. What we want is originalist right. uh, justices, right. and and so sometimes that means that um, I, I'm not speaking necessarily specifically to whether or not Kavanaugh will do the right or wrong thing right now. I'm just saying in general, I think that that can feel like it bites us in the ass sometimes. But we really need to back up and ask ourselves, what is it that's biting us in the ass? If a justice decides, like for instance. Abortion is legal, right? It's legal right now. So if somebody came to me and said, even though abortion is legal, I think we should start arresting people who have an abortion, um, you know, with no laws passed or anything. We just start arresting them or executing them or whatever, some, you know, absurd reaction to it. Um, I would be against that. Does that then mean that I'm happy it's legal? No, I'm establishing that it is legal right now now and it would be a violation of that person's rights to physically try to prevent them from doing something that they are legally protected to do 
And I think that at times when something goes before the Supreme Court, we have a conservative perspective on it and we want this person to think of it from our point of view and understand it from our point of view and get the bigger issue of life being at stake and the First Amendment being violated and all these other things or the Bill of Rights being violated and all this other stuff. But that's not his job. And I think that could be frustrating. But ultimately, I'd rather have somebody who's going to vote against their own values while following what the actual mandate of their job is. And I hope that's what he does. Yeah. And, you know, you did write an entire book about how the right should not be using the same tactics as the left. And we're going to get to that <laughs> towards the end <laughs> of the show. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. Um, let, let's change gears here a little bit. And uh, sorry in advance to the listeners that neither Ben or I are foreign policy experts. We're not no. experts on Middle Eastern <laughs> geopolitics by any stretch of the imagination, but we have to bring it up a little bit because it is very concerning. Uh, tensions are really heating up between Iran and the United States right now. The State Department ordered all non-emergency personnel out of Iraq due to potential Iranian attacks in the region. Um, mm-hmm. This is uh, this is troubling, man, and this could get really ugly. Um, what the hell is going on? Is there? Do you think there's actually a possibility of some kind of hot war with Iran in the next year or so, or is this just saber rattling like the Iranian regime does do every you know couple years or so? You know, it's and, and this is where you know the disclaimer that you just gave applies in that you know I look at this stuff a lot of times and I'm, I I look at what's happened in the last several years and ask myself what's different now and why might it be different. And there's no doubt that over the course of my life following politics, that uh, leaders in other countries and especially countries that are hostile towards us, they will make decisions not simply about what they what they want for their country at that moment, but they will do it in order to influence how other countries react and so on. Right. We're coming up on an election year. I'm not entirely convinced that the things Iran's doing, you know, sometimes they're saber rattling because they want to influence the outcome of election because they don't like the president who's in office so maybe they don't like donald trump and they thought that a democrat would be better for them and if they rattle their saber right now that's going to cause trouble for him and maybe he'll run into a position where he's not going to get reelected, and they'll get somebody that they like more i think that that's possible i think north korea has done similar things i think they still do the bigger issue for me is that i'm done with iran (laughs) like i'm just done (laughs) this is this like you know before you know, the the uh, 70s, before the late 70s, uh, this wasn't our problem or our beef or anything with Iran or Iraq even. Like, they, they, these were different kinds of places. And over the last several decades, Iran has been the, you know, the uh, the elephant in the room as it, as it relates to the Middle East. They're the gorilla. They're the big cheese, the big dog. Right. And uh, we've tried being nice. We've. We've tried making deals with them. I was against the Iran deal. So um, we tried. We tried to dissuade them. Uh, Obama literally tried to pay, pay them off. And even when he <laughs> pallets was of unmarked bills, to, yes, right. And even when he was trying to pay them off, it was astounding to me was they admitted that their plan kind of centered around the idea that there was no stopping what Iran wanted to do. They were just trying to slow it down, like that. That's it. And this is where I like start going full neocon at times. And I'm just like, you know, were we better off 
a hundred years ago when we had beef with people and we just started dropping bombs on them. Cause I start feeling that way sometimes when it comes to Iran and it's why I stay away from foreign policy a lot is because I have this instinct to go commando on it. But, just going, um, just going full anti gram on me right now, man. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But it's hard not to feel that way. Sometimes, um, you, these guys have caused trouble for us specifically at times times to try to influence us into uh, pandering to them, you know, to make peace in the ways that Obama was trying to make peace with the Iran deal. And Trump came in and certainly upset that narrative. And I'm not necessarily against how he did that. And this could be the cost. But at some point, I'm just going to really lose interest in trying to find a nuanced solution to this situation. And I, I like I don't want to be a warmonger but like at what point do you finally go yeah we just don't work well together and can no longer bumper sticker coexist over this stuff yeah i mean i i get that i i'm a you know what some people would describe as offensively libertarian on the issue of war right i mean i'm i'm like very very anti-war um especially in the last couple years i'm actually becoming more and more libertarian on the war issues but, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, like I said, please, nobody fact check either one of us on, the, on this topic. No. I'm sure we're getting a lot no, of stuff no, wrong. No, 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 it's, but, it's, it's all feelings. Like, I'm, I'm a, I'm a right. pure feelings guy when it comes to this stuff. And I, 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 I look at it and I just, I'm, I don't see how we can watch an enemy grow in power, grow in technology, grow in ways to harm us while they're saying they intend to harm us. And just sit back and go, well, I hope that works out. You know, at some point, you have to consider, okay, well, we might actually have to do something about this. And I, I don't know that we're there yet. I don't know that we were there when we went into Iraq, man. You know, I don't know that that was the right call. But yeah, I mean, I, I have to get one. I have to get one Rand Paul line in here. I'd be remiss if I didn't. If we didn't kill Saddam Hussein, he would still be there as a bulwark against Iran. And obviously that has... With the fall of Iraq, that has emboldened Iran a, a great deal, at least from what I can tell. Um, I would say um, when it comes to – I'm always a little weary of – wary of um, talking about what life would be like in an alternate universe. Um, I don't know that that's true. I know Rand Paul can see why that would be true, but I don't know that it's true. Maybe Iran would have eventually just evaded Iraq, or maybe Saddam would have overplayed his hand again like he did in the early 90s, or you know, maybe they would have just collapsed under the weight of their own terrible economic policies. Like, I, There's so many things that I think could have happened. Maybe the people would have revolted. Like, There's a, there's a trillion possibilities, and, and Rand Paul and others, they, they look at it and they, they say this is how life would continue to be had he stayed in power and then these other power vacuums wouldn't have existed but i'm just not sure that's true power vacuums might have opened up for a trillion other reasons that have nothing to do with iraq so while i don't know that it was the right move to move into iraq i don't think that that means necessarily that not going into iraq would have resulted in a peaceful middle east today i I really agree with you on the first point you made, and that is that what the hell are we supposed to do with Iran at this point? Like, I, I was against the Iran deal after I found out what was in the Iran deal. Um, but I remember when, when President Obama announced that they were negotiating a deal with Iran, I'm like, 
Awesome, sure. I mean, I I obviously didn't trust him yeah, or, I'm not or John Kerry. I didn't trust John Kerry yeah. to, to get a good deal, but I'm like, well, hell yeah, man. Give me a deal over a war any day of the week. And I, similarly, I praised President Trump when he uh, decided to negotiate with, with the North Koreans. And obviously it didn't work out. It didn't work out. The North Korean one could see, like, this is where I do get, you know, <laughs> I think that, that you always have to ask yourself in these situations – it's fine. I'm always willing to talk, but you, you have to ask yourself, why do they want to talk? What what are they getting out of it? Especially if in the end they're not going to give you anything you wanted. Why did they want to talk in the first place? They must have had other reasons. And so with North Korea and with Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, Donald Trump said I was historically went and was the first one that that talked to Kim Jong-un. Um, that talked to the leader of North Korea. No other president did that. Yeah, no, all of the other presidents could have done that. They didn't want to do that because their concern was that Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il prior to him is using this as an opportunity to influence nations around him, influence his own people or influence the people in the uh, aristocracy that's there and that we don't want to be somebody else's chess move especially if at the end of it all, we didn't get anything out of it, but their national, international influence went up, and I think his did. So I, I, that's where I get concerned about, like automatically, impulsively looking at it uh, as though it's automatically a good thing to talk to someone. I think it's always a good idea to be open to talking, but the circumstances of why matter. And with Iran, that was true. And I think with North Korea, that's true. We, we have to be conscious of their reasons. We don't want to be the, 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 uh, the ploy in someone else's game. Yeah, that's true. And, well, and look, full disclosure, you should disclose to the audience that you are uh, standing next to a framed portrait of John Bolton right now. So, you know, if that, <laughs> you yeah, know paint, paint, paint the picture for the audience, at least, Ben. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I, I just I do know this. The American people cannot stomach another war right now. I mean, if you think that like the 2016 election or the the life stuff or anything is is hurting the the fabric of the country, can you imagine another war right now? Like in, when we've been in the Middle East well, for yeah. 18 years, like holy crap, people would. I I don't think we could recover, man. Just as a society, we would be tearing each other to pieces. I think if we if we invaded I, I, another I, country, I don't know. I I don't like I, I'm not in support of it. I don't support it, but like I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean. We've been at war for uh, 18 years. It doesn't feel like we're at war. It feels like it, it, we are to the veterans. It feels like people who, you know, anybody who's connected to them or anybody who's getting shipped over there or anything else. But to everyone else, it's just like something that happens on TV. And this was something that was taking place uh, in Germany in World War II. There was, this, there was a long period of time where they were waging war all over Europe. And in Germany, everybody just thought life was fantastic. They were going to the opera. They were fine. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think that uh, can we stomach it? It's become so detached from our daily lives as, as little more than a news report. We don't feel the effects of war. Um, we're in a bubble in that sense. And I think that's a, a grand opportunity to make big mistakes right. and to yeah, enter I, into I, wars that we shouldn't because people are like, I think you're 100% eh. right, and that's terrifying, man. And it's, it's a little bit sad, too, as a society, how detached we have been from you know these mm-hmm. life or death issues. You know what? I uh, you watch Game of Thrones, right, Ben? Oh, absolutely, yes. Okay, we got to talk Game of Thrones briefly. Hello? 
But uh, yeah, we got to talk Game of Thrones briefly. Uh, the last several, like five or six guests I've had on the show, do not watch Game of Thrones, and I've been dying to. Uh, oh my gosh! To do so, yeah, I know. I mean, they're the only five people on the face of the earth. It's the most popular right. show of all time, literally. But you know, it's not even close. But so anyway, we got to talk some Game of Thrones, and then we'll jump back into politics. Uh, sure. The new season. Mm-hmm. Look, I love it. I, I'm not one of these. Com- Everybody's bitching and moaning every week. Like one, if if you're so offended by this new season, just stop watching for one. But two, <laughs> like there's obviously huge plot holes. I, I, I'm not offended by any of the decisions they're making, you know, from a in, in the writing room or anything like that. I think it's a great season. I'm more offended by like the lack of military strategy on all sides. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, these people really, really suck at war. I mean, it's like embarrassingly bad. Uh, not a lot of military strategy being employed on either side. But uh, what do you think about this new season, man? And and how the hell are they going to wrap so, all of this up in one hour on Sunday? I mean, holy crap. There's, they have like 10 different storylines to wrap up in one week. Well, I think that um, there's a couple of things at play for me when it comes to Game of Thrones. First of all, I basically worship this show from uh, season one to season six. Um, one of the reasons I have disappointment in season seven and se- season eight is not because of how the stories are getting wrapped up. I may be absolutely fine with the end of any of the arcs of any of the characters that are currently ending. I may be fine with how, uh, you know, so-and-so's story ends up. My, my issue is basically with HBO that my, the comparison I always make is, Season four, um, like the close to the end of season four, like the last episode of season four, all the way up until um, the next season, season eight. So like nine episodes, nine, were were Tyrion traveling from Westeros to Marine. Nine episodes of just him traveling. Right. Okay. Now, this gave opportunity for lots of character development and motivations. It showed how large the world is. It gave you a feeling for how large the world is. It created a passage of time that made sense. And that, that was how everything was. Everything was moving slowly because they really wanted you to get invested in these stories. And so my issue isn't that they aren't wrapping up those people's stories. It's that they only gave themselves two seasons with less episodes to do it. And so uh, take a, you know, spoiler alert. Take Jamie. His entire arc has been about redemption. <laughs> and completely erased the entire like thing. one episode. Just like one abruptly. Episode. It was it came out yeah. of nowhere too. Just slapped you right in the face. Like, ah no, just kidding. He was just bad all along. It's like wait, wait what? I mean he like, he <laughs> went from pushing a kid out a window to being to a sympathetic character. His incestual relationship with his sister. To uh, being a guy that was knighting the first female in all of Westeros, like, you know, and in then, a proud then, moment in Winterfell, like before the he, Night King army, after he'd her. abandoned uh, his sister, yeah. you know, like it, it, this was, was an incredible redemption arc. Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been also incredible to watch him get so far and, and then throw it all away. That also could have been incredible because people do that and that's real life. And that was always, you know, that that was Martin's thing is that life's not always like like happy go lucky. So 
fine, Jamie went on this incredible redemption arc, but in the end, he was recaptured by his addiction to his sister. But give they, me more than 1.5 episodes they, to watch that happen. They needed, yeah, they, he needed like four consecutive episodes of conflict, internal yeah. conflict, right? Deciding oh, I think what he he's going like to do. Seasons. Right, you just can't we just to see somebody. He, he went from knighting Brienne after abandoning his sister because he wanted to uphold hold his oaths he went from being the king slayer with no honor to being an incredibly honorable man that was just like the, the most ridiculous shift and then without explanation at all he goes from banging brianne to getting on a horse and calling himself hateful what happened yeah uh, so that bugs me that bugs that me. that does bug me too and then also jamie and cersei die in just the most bitch-ass way possible it's like come on man they got trampled by a by rocks rocks fell right. on them that that's that's the death of two of the main characters like well you could argue there's symbolism there in that cersei in the in the end she ultimately brought the whole thing down on herself she brought yeah it down on her own head or whatever but like you know we can draw 50 different symbols from that without being certain they're right because they just didn't give us enough to work with the only stories that are ending really correctly are the um secondary stories like the hound story from beginning to end, works. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They gave it all the attention it needs. And he, Game Bowl was perfect. It all went exactly the way it needed to. But that's because even though he's an important character, he's, his arc is not as large as Jon Snow's or Daenerys or Jamie's. Right. One and, thing that's driving me crazy is the people complaining about Daenerys's story arc. Guys, she's been the villain for a long time. Like she, like she crucified like 500 people, literally crucified 500 people in season four. Like that is like mm -hmm. some dark, evil shit, man. Like if you don't, right. if you didn't figure out that she's the bad guy, you have not been paying attention for at least half of the series. I mean, she's been bad. That's like, true. La but, uh, look, last season, she slaughtered, she slaughtered the Tarleys last season for absolutely yeah. no reason. It's like she's not but, good, man. She's never been good. I'm, I'm, so, gonna, I'm gonna defend. I, I'm gonna defend the haters on this. Okay. Not because I don't think there were any signs. I do. I agree. Absolutely. There were signs. Now, if I was writing this or whatever, I would imagine that what you do is you show her bloodlust exactly the way they did. Every time her, her bloodlust showed up, it was in her, it was in the name of like misguided justice. Right. Okay. So she thought it was justice. She was always doing it as sort of a way of fighting tyranny in her mind uh she was trying to establish not only her, her strength but she was trying to uh, uh that strength is designed to make the people who have usually suffered under tyrants feel secure that she's strong enough to protect them and so on and so forth she goes too far and she was going too far a lot in previous seasons but always with this sense of justice and she loses all of her, her advisors that had tempered her worst instincts over and over with the exception of Tyrion, who just turned into an idiot for some reason. But, um, yeah, he, yeah the, just terrible, terrible advisor. Right. right. But so the issue for me was, again, like I can rationalize it. I can read between the lines and I can say, you know, what happened here is she's she always has had this bloodlust that appears out of a misguided sense of justice. And as she's sitting up on top of her dragon and looking at the castle and looking at the people, she's remembering her family was destroyed. By these people. She was cast out. She's lived a life of suffering where she was raped and she was sold like a slave and all this other 
stuff. And these are the people who did it. And these are the people who supported it, you know, and her hatred came burning out and she decided she wanted to destroy all of them. The problem is they did not get her to start hating the people of Westbrook. Like she didn't start saying anything to indicate that she was viewing them potentially <laughs> even as the bad guys. And then suddenly was, she just did. It was so abrupt. I don't know. Yeah. I, it was. I, I agree with you there that it really went from like a three to an 11 just instantly. Yeah. I mean, you know, from, Oh, it felt like Anakin all over again. in yeah. episode three of star Wars where he goes from, you know, uh, he must be put in front of the courts to never mind. I'm going to murder Mace Windu and join the dark side. Call, call me Darth Vader, bitch. Like that was fast. And it's, it feels the same here. And, and, and for the same reasons, which is they took a books that had a lot of depth and, and they had a lot of detail. And then they spent the first six seasons trying to match that detail. And that's why the show became as big as it, as it was. But in their haste, for whatever reason, they decided that it was going to be eight seasons. So they spent six seasons basically establishing the first and second act. And then they spent two with less episodes establishing the third. And I just don't think it was enough, but yeah. I still, I still enjoy it. I don't want you to get me wrong. Yeah. I yeah. Still enjoy I, it. Even with the flaws, I still do enjoy it. What, what do you make of that white horse thing? Is that supposed to be like a biblical reference? Like the pale horse and the rider's name is death kind of thing. Like Arya's, you know, death I, 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 or something I, I, like, I, I don't know, man. I mean, they could do something weird like that. I, I suppose. I, I broke down uh, some some theories I had on what they're trying to say, not just with the horse, but just all together. And um, I could be totally off, but I was looking at it and thinking, okay, they've spent six, seven seasons, the enemy's death. For a long time, a lot of people didn't even know the enemy was death. Jon Snow knew. Lots of other people didn't. But the enemy was death. Right. Destroy it, basically. Um, uh you know, one character even said, like, you can't defeat death, but you must still fight it and so on. Right. All through the episode on Sunday, I saw something else. You saw Tyrion embracing death. He was saying, it's fine. You know, I'm going to release you. I know that I'm going to get killed for it. It's fine. You saw Jamie and Cersei embrace death. Um, you know, when they just decided to hug each other as everything collapsed around them and, and that they, they embraced what was happening. You saw Euron do that. He died with a smile on his face saying I'm the man who killed Jamie Lannister you have by the way that uh, scene the... completely unnecessary completely oh, unnecessary you had that, the hound that... embrace it like literally he embraced it and jumped through the brick wall so all these characters are embracing death throughout the episode except for three characters John Daenerys and Arya and all three of them are people who defeated death John came back to life Daenerys survived the fire and Arya killed the Night King so the only three characters that aren't embracing death are the only three who also defeated it. And I don't know what that means for the last episode, but that's what I saw. That's what I feel like the narrative is telling us is that the, the problem, the reason people feel the way they feel about, Oh, the show is betraying how you it because they're trying to show us, no, you guys had the wrong idea the whole time. Just like they did. They've been looking at this all wrong and it's going to get proven in the last two episodes of the show. That's what I think is happening. I uh, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this, Ben. It was floating around Twitter this morning. But just that clip of Peter Dinklage asking a question about the final episode. Did you see that this morning? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. 
Yeah. So, so yeah. they all interview- seem to be a little confused. Yeah, like an interviewer asked Peter Dinklage, who plays Tyrion, obviously, for those of you who don't know, um, you know, are you happy with how they ended the series? You know, what what's in store on the last season? <laughs> and Peter, extremely uncomfortable, names all the writers by name and says, yeah, they're the best writers in the history of television. And, you know, you guys are really going to love it. You guys are in for a treat. And he looks, it's like an ISIS hostage video. No, it is. It's and like I, the writers well, actually, kidnapped his wife. I'm like, dude, there are men with AK-47s right off camera right now. Like, uh, somebody check on this man's family. Like, oh, well, my goodness. There's compilation video of, of disappointed. Uh, Kit Harrington was interviewed and asked if he could use one word to describe season eight now that it's been completed. What does he think? What's the one word? And he said, disappointed. Oh, no. <laughs> he said disappointed. <laughs> and then she... The interviewer was kind of shocked, and he suddenly changed <laughs> it to or epic. I don't know, one of those words. And those, uh, those are so, not the same things, man. Those are well, polar opposite things. I think that uh, that this whole show, as per Martin's design, is to trick us because he's made Jon Snow this obvious heroic character. And his arc seems so clear. He's obviously always going to do the right thing. And by always doing the right thing, he'll fulfill the prophecy, save the day. You know, maybe he doesn't live, but he will at least secure peace. I'm just not sure that's actually what's going to happen. It seems like what he, what Martin wants us to think is that is, is in nihilism, essentially, that he's saying, no, 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 all the good <laughs> stuff. No, no, none of that's going to happen. Everything's going to suck forever. The only thing that would piss me off about the 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 last episode, um, like I kind of know they're they're not going to tie up a lot of these loose ends. They just don't have the time. Like there's going to be characters that just kind of never resurface, you know, that they just kind of left at the wayside. And I've kind of accepted that. The only thing that would actually piss me off is if they really bitch out and have like no one sitting on the Iron Throne like they like Tyrion and whoever else survives and Sansa. They like reorganize the kingdom into like a republic or something with seven different kings on a, mm-hmm. a council or something like look that'd be great for the citizens of westeros but it's not i mean the, the show isn't fucking game of republics right like i want somebody to actually well win. Uh, uh, so like that that I would theory. I, I have a theory i want to see what you think all right okay i want to see if you think that this like, like what you would think as a game of thrones fan if this would be something you liked okay Okay. They spent a lot of the show talking about, um, you know, the Targaryens, and then they spent significant time discussing Valyria, which is where the Targaryens came from. Right. And the Targaryen, or, or excuse me, Valyria uh, was a civilization that was more advanced than what they currently have, and it was destroyed in what they called the Dune. And nobody really knows what the doom was. And it happened 100 years before. All they know is that everything got destroyed. Everything. And the only remaining family from Valyria was the Targaryens. So they've taken enough time to talk about that. To, to show it to us and to say when Valyria had reached the height of its power and corruption, it was destroyed. He's also established that there are gods. There's no doubt that there's gods in this world. They've done work. They've said things. They've made things happen. They exist. Right. What if that's what's going to happen? Like, what if that's what if the last episode is 
it all just gets destroyed in the same way Valeria was. And in other right. words, no, Daenerys didn't come here to break the wheel. She's part of the wheel. These gods are going to break the wheel by destroying everything and requiring everyone to start over. Happy reset. End of show. Would that drive you nuts or would you feel like that was poetic? You know what? I would be okay with that. That that honest to God would not bother me. I think that I'd be okay with it too. I'm not sure that's what's going to happen, but like, I, I I really a lot of times when it comes to movies and TV shows, especially ones that are very well directed and well written, I always ask myself, why are they showing this to me? Like they're not going to show me for no reason. They only have so much time, so why are they showing it to me? They There's been no about, good reason. It's interesting too. I mean, that would be a, a crazy twist because they've talked so little about Valeria. You know, like, mm-hmm. they, they only show it, like, once when, I think it's Jorah and Tyrion when they're traveling through and it's right. overrun by those uh, those weird, like, demon people with the, the what, what, what's yeah, the, the stone disease men. called? Stone, like, men. stone men, right, right. The grayscale or whatever. But, yeah, mm-hmm. they, they haven't really addressed it that much for some reason. You would kind of assume they would. I haven't read the books, so I just from what I've watched, like, you assume that they're going to kind of bring Valeria into it and then they never do. They just never went back to that storyline at all. So yeah, that would be. Mm-hmm. I I would much prefer that to like a Deus Ex Machina, Happy Go Lucky, we're a democracy now, kind of like mm-hmm. cheesy ending. So well, I mean, you know, I like I just looked this up while we were talking because the one thing they did do and what stuck out to me was um, they recited kind of a well-known poem in their world where they say they held each other close and turned their backs upon the end, the hills that split asunder, and the back and the black that ate the skies, the flames that shot so high and hot that even dragons burned would never be the final sights that fell upon their eyes. A fly upon the wall, the waves of the sea wind whipped and churned the city of a thousand years and all that man had learned, the doom consumed it all like and neither of them turned. Like, Damn. If you think about it, they're describing like people who were indifferent to the... They're describing a people who were so blinded in their arrogance that they didn't see the end coming. Right. And if they then have been setting up us up this whole time to show that all of these people who thought they had their eye on the ball really didn't. And in the end, uh, you know, their backs were turned to the obvious destruction that was coming their way. Um, it would be kind of like a critique of the audience. Like, yeah, you guys didn't see it either. You're just like them. You thought it was going to go this way. You thought this was going to happen. It's not going to go this way. Because you kept your eye off the ball. You know what? That could actually that that would actually be a fitting end. I think. I, I think I would be perfectly okay if that's the route they they go. And one other thing. One more. One more. Holy crap! We're almost out of time. <laughs> <One> yeah. More, <laughs> and we need to talk about your new book. But what? One more point on Game of Thrones. Bran has to do something. <laughs> like he has to affect the storyline in some way in the final episode because he has been absolutely well, useless no, no. the it's entire worse, time. It's even, it's even worse than useless. This is I pointed this out to somebody the other day. They were like, you know, oh, he's been so useless. He hasn't done anything. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not true. He's the one who made it possible for the Night King to pass the barrier. Yeah. By like that's the, the only thing he did was make sure that the army of the dead could invade. That's right. been his purpose. Not great. Like, I don't think that him, yeah, uh, him being bait wasn't a great, that wasn't his purpose. No. Um, it's great that he has all these memories that other people can't see or whatever. Or he knew that Rhaegon 
you know, that, 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 that's all fine. But like, ultimately, how did he use his power to screw the whole world? That's how he used his power. He spent the entire battle of Winterfell pretending to be a bird. Right. Like that was it. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't doing anything. Like he wasn't helping anyone at all. No. And they conveniently leave out or selectively leave out that, uh, he knows the future too. Yeah. Uh, I, like people forget this, that these wargs, the guy who helped take him there to see the original three eyed Raven, he was telling their captors when they were captured, what that guy's future was, which was correct. Yeah. Then he got there, he got killed. And when, when Bran went and saw the three eyed Raven, three eyed Raven said that he knew that was going to happen and came anyway. And that he also knew the Bran was going to come. There was nothing that surprised the three eyed Raven. Why? Because he knows the future. So when John goes back to Winterfell after what Danny just did, he's going to be like, dude, what the fuck? Like, why didn't you tell me she was nuts? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you can't play. Uh, hey, John, John, bro, bro, come here. Your girl <laughs> slash aunt is actually yeah. Adolf Hitler. So yeah. proceed accordingly. Like, come on, right. you can't help a brother out. Like, just give me a, give me something to work with here, man. Yeah. My goodness. Can you just tell me what to do? <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. All right, so we're uh, we're actually over time already, but you, you've you wrote a, a new book, uh, The Immoral Majority. It's coming out in August, um, and pre-orders, yes. I believe, are live right now as we speak. You can pre-order the yes. new book. Tell us about it. Um, why'd you write this book? <laughs> Give us a brief overview and convince the people to go pre-order it right now on Amazon. So I, I think a lot about what the book, why I was inspired to write about it, is sort of some of the stuff we were talking about before. My interest, both as a Christian and as a conservative, is to try to influence people into seeing things the way that I see them, not through force, not through um, cruelty, not through any of the means that are often used in politics. The issue has become... Um, religious people who maybe viewed things the same way decades ago, they kind of, you know, got on, they got dressed and they marched to Washington to go influence Washington to, to be that way, to try to bring love to the world and all this other stuff. That was the, the uh, construct that they offered what they were claiming. They called themselves the moral majority and so on. So we're going to bring the teachings of Jesus to Washington and we're going to influence them. But what really has happened is Washington has influenced religious movements and Washington has influenced how they operate and what is their priorities and what it is that they want, how they think it's okay to wield it and to make matters worse. Often when they want to justify using cynical political tactics to win, they will cite it as the overriding will of God that God wants us to do this because he's on our side. And I find that to be a corruption of religion, which I think is somewhat inevitable when you marry politics and religion. So this is uses and talks about Trump a lot in the book, but I, I, I need to stress that while I am far from a Donald Trump fan, this is not about con condemning people who chose to vote for him. This is about condemning the mentality of adopting the cynical uh, nature of politics and bringing it into religion and then using religion to help enforce those things. I don't think that's what God wanted, and I think it's damaging to the discourse. Right, and I think this is a very important book, man, and I'm glad you, you pointed out this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't just a, a Trump-bashing book. It's not just like a, a cheesy, no. obnoxious, hashtag never Trump book. It's no. about the underlying issues. It's about the, yes. you know, the intersection of religion and politics and the negative effects of that and, you know, 
the underlying issues that we've been seeing escalate for decades now. And uh, yes, and, and you I know, think, I, look, there's no doubt that that, that the reason that this was the right time to write the book is because in a lot of ways, just given who Trump is and how he is, he is sort of a absurd example of how far people will go in order to defend their positions because he does a lot of absurd things and says a lot of absurd things. And so he's become a great example of, of what I'm talking about. And that's why this was the time to write it. And these were the circumstances to reference and I certainly talk about my positions in 2016, which were very never Trump. But it's not about whether or not I would vote for him now. It's not about whether or not anybody would vote for him in 2016 or vote for him now. It's about why did they, what does it say about how they support him now? How can we start getting back to a point where we don't look at every election as a false dilemma between two evils and then trying to pick the lesser one? Ones because I don't believe that that's how um, the moral hierarchies that are, that you use are supposed to be used. I think it's a bastardization of, of that concept, and it becomes an easy button where nobody has to be accountable for their moral views. No one has to be accountable for what they think or what they support or how heinous they may be, as long as they can always boil it down to, well, this was less evil than that. That gives us an escape hatch that I think is bad for us. Right. See, and that's that's something that as a Christian and as a conservative that, you know, I think we all, anybody who would describe themselves as a religious person and a conservative, it's something that we struggle with. I mean, every time we step into a voting booth, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, yes. going going back decades, it's it's something that we all wrestle with, or at least we should. These things should make us uncomfortable. We should struggle with these yeah. decisions. We should wrestle with these things. And these are points that we need to be focusing on and talking about. I think it's a very important book. I can't wait to read it, brother. And, uh, and I, I encourage everybody man. to I pre-order it. it. I encourage everybody to pre-order it on Amazon. Even if you're a hardcore Trump train guy, I mean, you can agree with every point in this book and still come to a different conclusion uh, on whether or not you should vote for Trump or not. Like that, that's not the point. Um, I think it's definitely yeah. an important book and yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on it, man. Where can everybody follow you online? Um, where can everybody read your stuff and keep in touch with you? And, uh, of course, tell everybody where to pre-order the book one more time. Absolutely. So uh, you can um, actually get the pre-order link and everything by going to my Twitter feed, at Ben Howe. Uh, you can also listen to my podcast with my co-host, Jay Caruso, on The Fifth Estate, which comes on every week uh, through iTunes, and that's also linked in my bio. Uh, generally speaking, I'm doing... Um, um, contributions. I don't, don't, I don't have like a home base for writing anymore. So you might find me at the daily beast or at the Atlantic or any number of other places. Um, and that's pretty much it. If you go to my Twitter feed, just understand it's insane, but it's fun. <laughs> daily beast. I didn't know you were over there, man. I don't know how they let you in the building, but man. Oh, uh, well they don't props. let me in the building. That's really, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's one of the reasons that I mostly do contributions these days is because I know that if I write a certain type of piece, uh, you know, they'll they'll take it. And it's I'm in a position these days where I have as much criticism for the right as I have for the left. And I, I know that if I really have something strong I want to say, I might be able to get it published there. But I'm not blind to the fact that there's a high likelihood that if I was publishing one of my more red state style posts, it's probably not going to be there. So what I try to do is make sure that I contribute to more than one place uh, because certain people won't take everything. And that's what happened. 
happens when you end up in a position where you're kind of being critical of everyone, which I am. That happens when you're, uh, you know, intellectually honest human being. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's a good I, I try not to just be like sitting on the fence, like lost in nuance and not like standing for anything. It's really not about that. It's just I want to I, I don't want to be held back from um, from criticizing who I think deserves it. And sometimes that means you can't get it published in the same place you might have published something else. Right. Well, there's obviously nothing wrong with seeing the world as it is, not how you want it to be <laughs> on a partisan level. So, I hope so. Anyway, Ben, thanks so much for coming back on, man. Hopefully you'll come back on soon. Everybody follow Ben on Twitter. He's great. And everybody pre-order the new book, The Immoral Majority, right now on Amazon. Uh, can't wait to read it. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Um, um.